sickest shit you'll ever see. I'm, I'm, I'm about to join a gym, so <laughs> we need to get on that. <laughs> we need to hit the gym and then hit the studio <laughs> immediately yeah, after. I think we should be high off endorphins then. Pre-workout, high Instead off that pre-workout. Of, yeah. Instead of what? <laughs> Instead of what? <laughs> Podcasting is my exercise. <laughs> Welcome to Extended Clip, episode 11. I'm one of your hosts, Eddie Averill. And I'm Malcolm Baum. And I'm JT White. And today we are going to be talking about You Killed Me First! A short film by Richard Kern. Following that, Eight millimeter. the Joel Schumacher classic uh, starring Nicolas Cage. Malcolm yeah. brought this uh, brought this double feature to us. Why don't, you, why don't you fill us in a little? Well, um, the theme here was underground filmmaking. And You Killed Me, Richard Kern, part of the cinema of transgression scene. 8mm, uh, kind of a mainstream depiction of underground films, particularly snuff films. And I thought it'd be a fun pairing, kind of, you know, even though Richard Kern didn't make snuff films, he, you know, he made, uh, you know, kind of like dirty, transgressive films. And like 8mm is kind of the, you know, Schumacher was a pretty popular filmmaker. So it's kind of like the, like if you got a, like a detective show version of like underground filmmaking tales from the underground <laughs> tales from the yeah this and this podcast is kind of like you know the notes from the underground at least that's how i see it so yeah exactly notes from the underground is what i yeah yeah to say yeah <laughs> see i'm a real smart guy i know about the underground <laughs> yeah. art scenes mm-hmm. uh mm-hmm. whether it be you know no wave or uh you know new wave yeah <laughs> or, uh, no wave to new wave that's yeah. extended clip yeah yeah, we're kind of like if you took a no wave band and a new wave band and put it on shuffle <laughs> like an iPod. Yeah, and like a chill wave band just like <laughs> fucked it. Just like yeah. had sex with it and they had like a kid. <laughs> that kid would be like fucked up. Yeah. Yeah. Twisted music demon. <laughs> and it would be our podcast. It'd also. be our podcast. Yeah. It's ba- yeah, we're basically all the waves together. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so that's uh that's our episode for this week. Yeah. All right, thanks a lot, guys. <laughs> yeah. So you killed me first. It is mm-hmm. As I said earlier, a short film. It is a experimental film. It's a genre. Well, experimental in a sense. It's an art film. We'll say that. It's something you might see in an installation. Yeah. Uh, To put it in perspective, not that he had anything to do with this, but if you watch the film Restored on YouTube, you will see the credit that it's restored by the Andy Warhol Foundation. So you know kind of what circles this film is traveling mm-hmm. in at least yeah and i kern i you know i did a little kern opsec and uh he was a big fan of paul morrissey who was into he made the warhol films yeah, yeah or like warhol produced films yeah mm-hmm. and you know john waters of course was definitely influential to this movement the cinema of transgression that richard kern belonged to this happened around the mid 80s and i just wanted to read a little bit from the the manifesto written by Nick Zed, I think that's his name. It's Zed. His last name is Zed, anyways. And it's, you know, transgression. If you know anything about transgression, it's edgy, folks. So this, this is a pretty fiery manifesto. We propose that all film schools be blown up and boring films never be made again. We propose that the sense of humor is essential element discarded by the doddering academics and further that any film that doesn't shock isn't worth looking at. All values must be challenged. Nothing is sacred. That's some Damn. pretty hardcore shit right there. I think we should only try and bring films to the table that fulfill that. Yeah. I think we should 
take that and to I think we should, yeah. <laughs> and I think we should start blowing up film schools. Yeah. yeah. I'm, I'm about to blow up the one I go to. But. Yeah. <laughs> I think we should start blowing up podcasting yeah. schools. Yeah. yeah. And here's, there's a little bit more. Um, and this is where he kind of really goes. This is like life philosophy. Since there's no afterlife, the only hell is the hell of praying, obeying laws, and debasing yourself before authority figures. The only heaven is the heaven of sin, being rebellious, having fun, fucking, learning new things, and breaking as many rules as you can. This act of courage is known as transgression. Yeah, I mean, it makes sense to me. Yeah. <laughs> Sounds cool, right? Yeah, that's I'm, I'm on board. But it, much better than fucking like Dogma 95 or anything like that. Like, I bet... I bet that manifesto doesn't have anything cool like this one does. Yeah, nothing about fucking. <laughs> oh, I don't know. I wouldn't pa- put it past <laughs> Lars von Trier sure. to put some edgy shit in him manifesto. I don't know if they, I don't know anything about that Dogma ninety five movement. In my opinion, Lars von Trier throw him in the trash can in the transgressive trash can. Wow, what a what a hot take, Eddie. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah. It's a real hot take for me. Uh, I I kind of like Lars von Trier. I don't know. There's something. I find something charming about him, but I think it's probably the things people don't like about no. him that I find charming. I'm I'm with Malcolm on yeah. this one. I like a lot of I like I can get like obviously why uh people feel like he's just like a particular type of thing, but I do think there's something of like empathy there and like yeah. it's like I, I don't know. He he's not always like cynically sort of like grinning to the camera. Yeah. I see him as something of the Ricky Gervais of the <laughs> art house film scene. Well, Ricky Gervais is the Ricky Gervais of the art house film scene. Didn't you see the invention of lying? I, I've seen it multiple <laughs> times. <laughs> Let's not lie to ourselves. That's a commercial release. It made lots of money. Damn. I, I always found it as kind of like an underground, you know, indie, you know, thing. It's pretty. Cinema of transgression. Yeah, it does break a lot of the rules. Yeah. It does follow the rules of storytelling in terms of screenwriting structure to a painful T, though. Yeah. You, that is like one of those movies where you, if you watch it, and keep track of the timer, like the minutes that go by. It works perfectly for like the midpoint <laughs> mm-hmm. turning point, like three quarters of the way through. Every like major time marker, there's a major plot point. It's pretty funny. Hell yeah. Well, the one thing I remember about that movie, and I think it was in the trailer, is that like he just basically manipulates a, a woman into having sex with him. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> that's, you know, that's not good. Well, you know what else is not good? Oh. They get married. <laughs> oh, shit. Well, at least it has a happy ending. That's what my grandma would always say about Woody Allen uh, marrying his stepdaughter or whatever. He's, she's always like, they're still married. Uh, 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 that's cool. Love is love. <laughs> love is love. The heart wants what it wants. <laughs> that's fucking disgusting. <laughs> <laughs> so you killed me first. We start out. At a nice family dinner, but it's not like any normal family dinner. Yeah. You know, right away, you see things are a little tilted. They're a little askew. I would say the opening few shots are kind of downright ugly, I yeah. would say. Yeah. They're kind of hiding the face of the protagonist, uh, Cassandra, or as her family calls her, Elizabeth. And then right when you get the reveal of that character from then on every frame seems like so carefully composed mm-hmm. it's kind of a weird shift in like the yeah. aesthetic of the movie just like the opening 45 seconds even yeah and the it kind of um begins with this you know dinner scenario which eventually evolves into uh cassandra that's her name yeah 
you well, know, that's what she wants to be called. Oh, that's what they, she wants to be I called. Guess her and that's what I'll call Elizabeth. her. Yeah. It starts with her, or it's kind of the opening scene and she kind of goes off on her parents, you know, yells at her and then it fades into, you know, kind of her daily home life. And then it kind of goes back to that scene kind of bookends with those, the going off. We could just get, you know, it's a short film, so we can just jump yeah. all over the place. The title comes so you know, she kills her family as she goes off. And that's kind of the, it's kind of like the framing device. It, it opens on the dinner table and then you see why they killed her first. You know, you see a couple scenarios from her life with her family and her kind of shitty home life. Mm-hmm. And then you go back and you see the massacre at the end. And it's all done really, yeah, really well. It's really funny, mm-hmm. really beautiful in its lo-fi way. Yeah. Uh, really interesting. Like every kind of cut and camera movement is in its own way kind of remarkable because it doesn't have like normal motivations. You know, it's mm-hmm. as the manifesto said, away with film school, it really is kind of ignoring what usual film grammar kind of means and just reappropriating it how it wants to. Yeah. I feel like, I mean, one thing that immediately, like, aside from, like, the vulgarity of it all that just, like, instantly appealed to me about, like, the inspiration from John Waters that the cinema of transgression takes is that it's, like, a weirdly, like, removed sort of, like, parody and exaggerated, like, version of, like, uh, family life. Yeah. And I just, like, I love working within that framework because uh, there's already such clear, like, established dynamics that you know the roles are going to sort of fill out. But, like, the fun spin that it does with it is really, uh, I don't know, it just the humor really, uh, really won me over. Yeah, you got the classic dad character who's just, you know, loves his control. You know, that's... And then you have the mom who kind of, like, masks her hysteria as, like, concern and, you know, but is really not doing the best for her daughter. And then her sister, who's, you know, the parent's ideal, you know, has a, a, a decent boyfriend and uh, future prospects. And then you got the main character, Cassandra mm-hmm. Elizabeth, who dates, you know, weirdos that she finds on the street named Cheese. And <laughs> yeah. her parents don't approve of that. And then she's smoking in the house. Dad freaks out. It's a really great line delivery by the dad, who's like clearly not that much older. Smoking in my house? Sit down. You know, I don't understand you for a minute. Yeah, and it's just such a clearly young film that they couldn't pay an older person to be in it. <laughs> <coughs> oh my god. <laughs> this film is just so disgusting <laughs> and vulgar and transgressive. <laughs> Eddie can literally not. <laughs> physically handle it my god i've never seen such a visceral reaction to cinema it shows that these movies these transgressive movies still have the same power oh, he's throwing up and shitting himself oh it's everywhere oh my god jesus please oh. work sucks i know well, folks, I'm sorry. We had a quick injury report. Yeah, now uh, we're back. We have a quick injury report. That is, uh, I sprained my throat. I, I choked on my own spit while talking and uh, almost threw up. And my <laughs> boys were there to commentate or were there to yeah. announce it on pod. And it was very nice. Uh, we're back now. I might have cut that part out. Might not have. So, yeah, she's witnessing all this shit at her house. It's Mm. all terrible. Her dad's just railing on her. Her mom's railing on her. And then her dad's railing on her mom, if you know what I mean. Making her moan so loud at night she can't go to 
the daughter can't go to sleep because the mom's making too many sex noises. That mom's just getting fucked. Yeah, and there's the scene where uh, it's actually it's so well shot. Yeah, holy shit! Like, yeah, she's slowly creeping through the and you could tell they don't have a real house to shoot it in. Mm-hmm. So when she's supposedly creeping through the hallways, you just get this really tight shot on her where there's no light and it looks like she's being lit by like a flashlight or something. Mm-hmm. It's barely see her face. And then it matches perfectly because there's just a slit open in the door. Mm-hmm. And that's how you see into the room to watch them fuck. And the space that that slit takes up matches like the width of her face in the close up. And it's just such a perfect match. And the her terror is so clearly felt. But it's also just really funny because mm-hmm. both parents are totally overacting the sex. And <laughs> it's great. Yeah. And it's it's something that you could tell like. Kern is really interested in when he's depicting it and you know it's that was his thing a lot of his movies were just a lot of uh sex acts often more taboo than just you know marital relations yeah in some of my after watching this I did a little Kern research of my own because (laughs) in I think one of the letterboxed uh comments someone had mentioned that he had a big hog uh (laughs) that you could see and I was like what he has a big dick I want to see this like if there's anything you need to know about your favorite auteurs (laughs) are they hung to contrast Howard Stern last (laughs) yeah Um, and it was in, uh, in case you want to do your research at home, uh, it's my nightmare, I believe, but it's my dream to have a (laughs) hog that big. Um, (laughs) he is, uh, for most of like the movie, it's him like, uh, jacking off and then he gets into like, uh, some weird like sexual, uh, relations like with a woman, um, where they're like in a shower and like whatnot. I believe there's some pissing. Um, yeah, it was also really good. Hey, Mr. Skin, file it away. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. This is the Mr. Skin episode because uh, I also, you know, I watched Submit to Me, which is another Richard Kern film, and I don't really have much to say about it. But it's just these, you know, just great shots of, you know, just people having sex, uh, people shooting up heroin, people, uh, <laughs> a couple uh, mutually choking themselves to death. Like it's, you know, it's just stuff for cool people. You know what I mean? That sounds pretty cool to me. Yeah. I might have to check some more of these out. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah, do it. Nice. I will. <laughs> <laughs> I'm glad. So, yeah, we see all of these activities play out, and the style kind of gets more and more expressive as it goes. They're these kind of cute zooms. Uh, mm-hmm. The zooms like are playful more than anything. They're not really used for the horror aspect of it. They're more for just like the campy kind of John Waters-y aspect of it. And then you cut back to the dinner table and uh, she pulls out her dad's gun, which is so cleverly placed in the first, you know, three minutes or so. You just see like a 10 second shot of her dad showing off a new gun and like shooting it at the ceiling (laughs) like a fucking idiot. Yeah. And um, another thing that the dad does that shows the more extreme side, Cassandra has a pet rabbit and she's not cleaning up after it she's letting it shit all over the house and you know i'd be kind of mad about that too but the way he deals with it i don't know if i would do he takes out a a butcher's cleaver and hacks it to death yeah and the special effects you know they really (laughs) they really went all out on the budget there with the uh the stuffing of the stuffed rabbit (laughs) flying all over the place which i loved yeah you know really good it matches the aesthetic Mm -hmm. of it perfectly the dad looks like a beta o'rourke oh yes he does holy shit that's like that's that probably was Beto because we know he has like <laughs> punk roots, you know. Yeah, he like listened to Fugazi. Yeah, so he was probably in this movie. Yeah, he's probably jacking off in a Richard Kern film we don't <laughs> even know about. Yeah, 
we don't we you know we don't take either side yeah uh, on this show no <laughs> politics whatsoever <laughs> you know if you're a fan you got to fuck with us just off the strength of our likability you know and we won't reveal our politics Republicans, <laughs> free speech, dude. Fucking Mars von Trier. This is how I live yeah. my life. Now. Yeah, this is. <laughs> I'm sorry, we had to go it's to surprising. a break, and we're back now. Uh, we had a free speech debate. Uh, Malcolm challenged me on my ideology uh, by challenging me to an open debate. We had a nice civil time. Yeah, both. yeah. And it just shows that you should encourage debate, like this podcast does. Uh, I'm sweating though. Uh, Malcolm won. You know. Uh, it is a little warm in here. I think we have the AC where we usually do, but mm-hmm. we're just bringing up the hot topics. I know. I feel like we're we're on fire on yeah, this, this episode. Yeah, this is just such a... No, this episode sucks. This is like terrible, <laughs> but whatever. We'll keep I think... Going. I don't know. I feel like it's our best one. <laughs> I didn't want to say it already, but... <laughs> I mean, we're just like... It's it's a vulgar episode. We got to yeah. get down and dirty with Kern. Yeah, it's true. It's true. So yeah. I, oh yeah. Speaking of dirty, uh, after she watches her parents fuck, she goes back and like goes to be comforted by like one of her like toy animals and then the toy animal like throws up in her hand and that shit's pretty awesome that's mm-hmm. like a cute little vomit get yeah, like fake vomit thing that i liked quite a bit and yeah after she kills them it's like that's pretty much it you get a little look at the table you get a look at that you know turkey the classic american family iconography oh yeah eating bloody turkey <laughs> and yeah and then it ends actually it gets the title card, or not a title card, some like credits card. Yeah. And then there's like a shot of her just uh, in a room, just shooting three times. Oh really yeah, cool. that was a really cool uh, like post credit scene. Yeah. Kind of was like the uh, in the Great Train Robbery, which is I know like a bit of a stretch for this, <laughs> but uh, the end of that film, at the end of it, you get that head-on shot of the guy shooting the camera after like yeah. the story and everything, and. I guess the exhibitors were told to place that either beginning or end or wherever you want, but mm-hmm. on like the DVDs of the Great Train Robbery, it's like after the credit kind of. Yeah. Uh, so it's kind of the same tactic here as just a little like, fuck it, you just watched a cool movie, let's watch this person shoot a gun a little more. Yeah, yeah it's for the current uh, MCU, a teaser. <laughs> for, I mean the the KCU. Yeah, the yeah. KCU. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, and so you know what to look for in the next one. Mm-hmm. She unloaded the clip. It was sick. It's true. It was not extended. That gun no. emptied out pretty quick. But yeah, so uh, You Killed Me First, Richard Kern. Highly recommended. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Hey. I give it four bullets out of five. Four bullets. I give it four and a half bullets out of five. How I about just, that? I just gave this one one big bullet. Ooh, that's more. that could be more that's, impactful. Wait, out of how many? <laughs> no, I just gave it a heart on uh, Letterboxd. Oh, okay. that's what I do for shorts. Yeah, yeah. I, I usually I do shorts, like... but I've been rating them out of five if we watch them for the pod. Hmm. Wait, no, actually, I didn't rate Anima. Shit, what should I rate? Get a live look at my posting process. I'm sticking with one big bullet. <laughs> just I'm, I'm taking uh, i'm taking the gun to the head of you killed me first and i'm screaming at it mm-hmm. um, about to pull the trigger all right well i think that's a hearty endorsement from all of us mm-hmm. we will be back in just a minute extended clip holy or something and, and you're fucking made of shit you don't even know what you don't even know what goodness is welcome back to extended clip uh we had a nice little break there before we get into eight millimeter, you guys see anything else of note this week? Um, yeah, I like r- the last like 
two days i feel like i've crammed in some good stuff there just to like i want to you know during my week i think like when it's getting close to podcasting time i better have some impressive (laughs) shit to talk about um so i'm gonna start off with some pretty impressive shit Uh, invader zim enter the floor hell yeah now, were you a Hot Topic kid growing <laughs> up? No, I wasn't, but I had the bangs for it. If I could have, I could have really leaned into being an emo kid. And I'm like rail thin enough to be like that kind of depressed. Hell yeah. Um, but no, I like uh, recently, um, Nico and I uh, made our way through um, watching Invader Zim, like rewatching it. Um, because I hadn't seen it since I was a kid, it like surprisingly like held up, like it, and like not in like kind of like an edge lord like kind of funny way like you would expect. Um, and then I, one of my roommates suggested watching the movie because it just came out on Netflix. Um, plug for my favorite brand, <laughs> um, and uh, it was like it was good. Like it was clearly one of those things where it was like the driving factor. Um, was like a, a very nostalgic sort of cash grab, but it wasn't like an unmerited thing. It was funny. The animation was like really good and like different from the series. And I think they did like some of the vibrant type of stuff that Spider-Verse was trying to do, but I think a little bit better. Wow, that's a strong mm. recommendation. Well, not that any of us are crazy about Spider-Verse, right? I mean, I mean, I didn't, I didn't see it, so I didn't. Okay, well, yeah. No, but yeah, I guess <laughs> that shit's stupid. I don't yeah, know. yeah. <laughs> uh, what about you, Malcolm? You see anything else of note? Yeah, I watched The Driver, Ooh. And, and it was Walter inspi- Hill. Walter Hill. I got hill pilled, and <laughs> it was inspired off of your car list on Letterbox. Hell I yeah, I gotta see that one. Honestly, yeah. I I would heavily recommend it. It's it's a very like very minimal. Very like the characters are very flat. They don't say much, and it's it's pretty much so much driving. Lots and lots of driving. And, you know, I love all the driving scenes, but I feel like the scene that impressed me the most is where Ryan O'Neill, who stars in the movie, um, tries to not get a driving job from these two individuals and just circles around a a parking garage fucking up their car. An amazing scene. Um, And I had some beef, some beef I wanted to air out with Pauline Kael. Oh, Um, I saw this. Oh, yeah, damn. Or not Pauline Kael, I should say. Yeah. (laughs) Um, no, but Pauline Kael, uh, specifically who's, you know, known for being wrong and she's a, she's a fun writer, you know, even if she's wrong sometimes, you know, she said, you know, she didn't like how the characters were flattened out. She wanted some, you know, goofy, you know, crime underworld characters, you know, maybe like someone like Polly from the Sopranos and we all like the Sopranos, oh, of course, you know, but you know, you know, I think it's kind of a, a limited view by her, you know, not, you know, every gangster movie needs to be one way, you know, usually if you told me flatten out characters you know not a lot of characterization i'd probably see that as a bad thing but it really just works for this film so you know pauline kale stop your hating yeah i feel like when you're operating at the level that i've seen walter hill you know do before Mm -hmm. i haven't seen this film in particular but with genre it kind of overwhelms the sense for character you know character is just arbitrary at that point like who cares if the genre stuff is that good yeah and honestly bruce dern in the movie he plays like a a cop who's obsessed with Ryan O'Neill and he's, he's quite a character in the movie. He's doing a lot of dirty stuff, you know, um, dirty cop stuff. So yeah. Any dirty, like dirty stuff? No, 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 no. Is this like a sexless action movie? Um, pretty much. There's nice. a, Isabella Adjani. I, oh yeah. She's in it. And 
It's <laughs> definitely like, oh yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but like, there's like her and O'Neill are definitely a couple. But like, I think they're so they're so like focused on the task that there's no time for that, which is you know kind of sexy in its own way. <laughs> nice. Being too distracted to fuck. Yeah, exactly. Just like I got work to do. <laughs> I only watched like three films since we last recorded. Strange Illusion by Edgar G. Ulmer, though, was a real that was a real heavy hitter. That is Edgar G. Ulmer's like Poverty Row Hamlet. Uh it was a nineteen forty five film by Edgar G. Ulmer, who is kind of the king of Poverty Row, if you don't know. And he makes some of the best B movies of the 30s, 40s, and 50s. Uh, Especially like the 40s and 50s is when he was more doing the B movies. 30s, he had a little more clout. You know, that's when he did like the Black Cat for Universal. But Strange Illusion is his Hamlet kind of movie. And, you know, it's a little crazy. And, you know, doing Hamlet as an 85-minute B movie, you know, there's going to be a lot of narrative shortcuts. There's going to be a lot of shortcomings there's a lot of stuff that's cut out and you know i'm not exactly a shakespeare head but even i could see uh that the omissions are definitely like kind of create shortcomings in like the narrative like payoffs of it but ulmer you're not really watching for that honestly and he finds so many ways to be expressive with the camera and the set design throughout this like really kind of trashy you know then contemporary hamlet remake and it's uh it's really great, you know. I don't know. I can't really say much else of it. Uh, Dave Kerr said about the movie, "Framed by dreams, the movie is a nightmare in itself." And can't say much more than that. Shout out Damn. Dave Kerr. Yeah, shout out Dave Kerr. One of the best. Yeah, big Kerr head. Yeah, uh, I, I yeah I like him. He's one of he's one of these guys that has uh, a really well updated not blank letterboxed account. Mm-hmm. This is one of my favorite phenomena of letterboxed is. When a user creates an account for critics like Dave Kerr, Armand White, Pauline Kale, and just like uploads the archives of reviews, because a lot of these people don't have great archives. Uh, Jonathan Rosenbaum has a fantastic archive. Mm-hmm. So much of his Chicago Reader stuff and stuff from his books, even, are on his website and so easily searchable and sortable and stuff. But a lot of these people, their stuff is just lost. So. Shout out to the posting warriors yeah. that are posting <laughs> old Dave Kerr reviews well, on Letterboxd. I got I got a perfect plug for your my boy Emmett just started a not Jay Hoberman account on Letterboxd. I saw that. So, you know, all the Hoberheads head over. Hell <laughs> yeah. So the second film that we watched and are gonna talk about here is Eight Millimeter, the nineteen ninety nine film by Joel Schumacher. Now nineteen ninety nine, big marquee year for American cinema. I feel like 8mm, not exactly one that people talk about when they're putting together those lists, right? No, yeah. And a great year for Cage, too. Is is Bringing Out the Dead 99? It is, yeah. What, what, honestly, what a great combo. Two of the visionaries yeah. of the turn of the century of American cinema. Look, I'll be straight up. I don't think I've seen another Joel Schumacher film other than this, but he he showed up. I don't know. Like I, I, I hate to get right into it. But I remember listening to a very cursed podcast episode maybe five, six years ago where Devin Faraci, uh, and I don't remember which podcast this was on, but Devin Faraci referred to Joel Schumacher as like the worst filmmaker in America or something like that. And I don't think that like influenced me to not watch his movies, <laughs> but I always had this like sting at the back of my head, like this weird, you know, this guy that whatever, who sucks, uh, thinks that this guy sucks. 
maybe he takes one to no one. Maybe he's totally wrong like he was about most things. And yeah. I say was because he doesn't exist anymore. <laughs> uh, I don't choose to acknowledge Cinema Sangha or whatever Devin Farachi's Buddhist film blog is as a real thing. <laughs> I think he, his Patreon counts out like a hundred something, something like Damn. that. I don't know. More than us. Yeah. Come on. Come on, guys. Come on. Donate to the Patreon. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Why don't you guys unsubscribe from Devin Farachi's Patreon, guys? <laughs> yeah, I That's know our listeners are the people who are doing <laughs> yeah. it. I've only seen... I thought I would saw, saw another Joel Schumacher movie, but I've only seen The Lost Boys, which is a, a Santa Cruz classic. Mm, I've not seen that one. I don't even remember most of it. So, yeah. Nice. Yeah, I mean, his work seems similarly twisted. Uh, he did uh, Falling Down... Uh, with Michael Douglas, um, the number twenty three. Oh shit, um, hell yeah! Yeah, a lot that's of that's a uh, fucked up movie. Those both I've seen like a lot of scenes of on cable, but I've never yeah. sat through the whole thing. Falling down. Also, there's a there's a Foo Fighters music video that parodies the climax of that movie, where Dave Grohl is just so sick of the fucking shitty pop music that's on the radio <laughs> so he gets out of his car in traffic and walks and starts singing the badass foo fighters song that's playing Damn. and like there's like a bumper sticker that says cold play sucks shit yeah call him out yeah but it's kind of weird because like isn't that like isn't he like a mass shooter in that movie uh i believe yeah i think so. he goes postal. it's like a happiness-esque <laughs> yeah. shooting yeah. yeah i remember the scene in the he shoots people in like a fast food place right yeah, I, yeah. I don't think I've seen even that yeah. scene all the way through. Uh, fans of Falling Down are screaming at their devices right now, <laughs> just pounding on their steering wheel as they drive to work. <laughs> I mean, you know what? After uh, Eight Millimeter, I feel like I might. I'm curious I about yeah. Falling oh, Down. Oh, for sure. True. Yeah, I want to fall down. Yeah. Also, he he did a movie called Phone Booth, which was written by Larry Cohen. Okay, I have yeah. seen Phone Booth. It rips. It's yeah. like yeah, that shit is cool. That was like one of my first big boy movies when I was like twelve years old or whatever. Mm-hmm. Uh, Larry Cohen, the God, uh-huh. late career, just like putting them together. The B movie, not even B. It had big promo and shit, but mm-hmm. you know, it wasn't a huge, or you know, it all is in the phone booth. <laughs> you yeah. can't be that crazy. Uh, that movie is really slick and like pretty cool. Yeah. But anyway, eight millimeter, it opens in kind of a little home cinema, dark room action. You got like a, the projector going up against a wall, nice cramped little space. So after some nice images of, uh, like celluloid fetishization over Mm -hmm. the opening credits, we are properly introduced to Nicolas Cage, our protagonist of the movie, Tom Wells, uh, we also see in these opening credits, the film is shot by Robert Ellswit, who was uh, at the time in between Paul Thomas Anderson movies. And I got to say, it shows. Uh, same kind of steady cam work you see in that, you yeah. see in this uh, with those 90s PTA movies. And a lot of the like textural quality is kind of similar, especially when they're outside, like in the sun, oh, yeah. when it's not as like dark. And, you know, when there's more expressive lighting, it looks more like a different film than the pta ones did i guess yeah Mm -hmm. and yeah i feel like the first half of this movie definitely has like kind of the muted gray color tone that we've come to see in a lot of like detective movies and tv shows and well this is written by the screenwriter of seven who in seven fincher definitely introduced that like disgusting uh aesthetic for those kind of serial killer movies and i'm not particularly a fan of seven but i i see its importance in that regard Yeah. yeah and i yeah i gotta say 
seven didn't eat nine in this case because I definitely like <laughs> this movie better than seven. Wow. Wow. That damn, rules. Dude. That fucking rules. <laughs> you came off of that. Damn. <laughs> yeah, I fucking killed it. <laughs> um, Lock them <but>, up. <laughs> but yeah, I mean, most of the, like, the early grittiness, I mean, f- felt weird for me because it was like, um, it took place in uh, my my hometown sort of roots. They right when Cage is coming back, he gets out and lands from like the Harrisburg airport. Um, there's a Patriot News, the actual Harrisburg newspaper there. Nice. Um, and then throughout the like first half, Harrisburg, Lancaster. Hershey for all you PA heads just like me out there. Uh, oh, and then Philly and Pittsburgh get mentioned too. But um, it like does like, I mean, obviously like it's mostly a stylistic thing uh, like to get to that like serious, like dark nature, but it like feels really weird uh, for like supposed to be like central Pennsylvania. Like I can p- kind of buy when they introduce like the wealthy like family from like a that's in like a suburbs of like Philly like that's definitely like I don't know that feels like appropriate for the state but uh the rest of it just sort of felt like I don't know it felt like it was doing the LA thing before it got to LA but I mean I don't think it was shot in PA so that probably is reflective of that yes so after that that wealthy estate that you talk about that is where we get kind of the film noir detective story set up. The classic yeah. meeting with the detective with the client. And so this old rich widow uh, shows him a 8mm film that she found in her late husband's vault. That was just all like cash and this film pretty much. And so he watches it and it appears to be a snuff film. And he thinks it's fake but he's also extremely disturbed by mm-hmm. it. And this scene is really incredible. Yeah. Uh, where he's watching the film in this little confined room and the camera is kind of creeping along and it's shooting it from behind the little screen that it's being projected on. So you get the reverse image uh, for like half of this big cinemascope frame and the other side of the frame is Cage's reaction. And it looks like a split screen, but it's not. It's just the barrier of that screen working as like this border between cage and the image and it's you know the shot and the reverse in the same frame and it's really great how he uses this in motion uh really effective to show like cage's terror and he's Mm -hmm. totally playing it up like brilliantly Mm -hmm. it's awesome it's it's definitely like the kind of like almost an apex of cage performance for me because he has that he still has a little bit of restraint he's not overdoing it completely but you still kind of get the pleasure of when he goes for it yeah Mm-hmm. Yeah, he definitely, this like shows a glimmer of what you'll see kind of in the last like 20 minutes of the film. You see early on uh, how when fully provoked, this Nicolas Cage character can go full like Cage Bozo mode, like just <laughs> absolutely flipping out, no restraint whatsoever. But he just shows it to you in little sparks here. And yeah. then he's contained for like an hour and a half, which mm-hmm. is fantastic. I love that. Mm-hmm. So... He gets the assignment, basically. He needs to find the girl who died in the film uh, and see if she's alive. And he very quickly finds out that she's not. But first, he establishes a relationship with the girl's mom, who is very you know, down and out about this. She seems very depressed, and she's convinced that her daughter's still alive and that she ran away. And the FBI agent who's supposed to be helping her find her daughter is not doing anything about it, you know? 
Yeah, and these scenes they're very they're very well done and they're you know, they're kind of touching in a way that I feel like a lot of other movies might not pay as much attention to. Oh, for sure, yeah. And speaking of the celluloid fetishization that I brought up earlier, like one of the first clues is that he is zooming in on like the edges of like the ends of the films to see the label on it. And he sees that it's like a discontinued film stock that hasn't been produced for like six years. So that's how he's able to date the film. And it's really great in getting into all these specifics about film and, you know, using that as it's kind of like instead of being an homage to film noir itself, it just takes the film noir genre and is an homage to film the actual material quality itself Mm -hmm. and i think that's really interesting thing that more movies should do rather than being an homage to the content of other movies yeah i mean i feel like going hand in hand with that there's a lot of stuff where we get to see like sort of uh humorous like appropriations of director characters oh yeah um and sort of like that kind of commentary there Mm -hmm. like with like the pornographers uh being like their own sort of like falling into that realm of like being like pretentious about film but it's like a uh, smut yeah and mm-hmm. we meet these pornographers when nicholas cage goes to california so he finds the girl's diary uh who he's discovered now is dead and he finds her diary that says she was going to go to california so he goes to california and he meets joaquin phoenix working in a sex shop and he pretty much takes him on as like his mm-hmm. partner kind of an assistant kind of his inside man you know gets him into the porn scene yeah introduces him into some dirtbag culture you know it's pretty great Mm -hmm. and joaquin phoenix uh with a legendary look in this movie with the punk haircut eyebrow ring wears a crop top at one point you know a lot of sleeveless shirts you know a lot of fashion heads gotta watch out for this one and so this is when you meet all these dirtbag pornographers and like hardcore underground film guys and to give you a perspective like the billing of care these are the names of the characters in the order which they're billed tom wells max california eddie pool dino velvet longdale and machine so you get you know these are just fucking sleaze bags like it's awesome it's just the film is so pulpy in a way that other neo-noirs don't dare to go you know it's just it's really indulging in how fucking sleazy all this is yeah and there's you know like you said introduces them to the underground porn world there's like you know literally a scene where they go to a porn like flea market or something like that and yeah it it, it goes you know it goes real sleazy there's um child porn for sale yeah i was gonna say there's like a booth that just says kids it's disgusting oh yeah that's oh epstein level yeah Yeah, there is i mean this this film like as we delve deeper and deeper into the conspiracy gets into like some Epstein tier shit yeah. um, mm-hmm. with that, with that. Yeah, definitely some extremely rich people uh, doing things because they can, mm-hmm. as one character says. So he buys some, what he thinks are snuff films because he's trying to like find these filmmakers who made the film that he watched. And, you know, the guy selling them says, <laughs> That this is the sickest shit you'll ever see. And he watches these films of like a woman getting killed. And then he's realizing that they're, you know, a fake because it's the same actress in each film. And he's getting so devoted to just studying these pornography film, like these hardcore uh, BDSM like Mm -hmm. subgenre of like 
you know, uh, roughies, if you will. Yeah. And meanwhile, his wife is pretty upset with him, played by one of my faves, Catherine Keener. Oh, man, I was so glad to see her in this movie. Uh, she's very good. Like, this is a, always a thankless role in fucking detective movies mm-hmm. when the wife is at home. Like, hey, you have a family over here, yeah. but yeah. I'm so caught up in the case. <laughs> uh, and this is a movie, you know, fuck it. I, I just have to get over that when I'm watching these movies, yeah. to be honest. And Catherine Keener, like, she joins the ranks of... You know, like uh, Chloe Savigny in Zodiac, you know, that type of character who is just like not allowed to do shit and it sucks because the movie's about other people. But, you know, she does what she can Mm -hmm. uh, with her screen time like Catherine Keener always does. Yeah, there's like five scenes where Nick Cage and Keener have 45 second phone calls (laughs) Uh, where Cage is like, yeah, I'm working hard. I'm real busy. Well, I gotta go. I love you guys. Mm. It's literally that every time. Yeah, I, mean, I don't want to shit on the movie, but that was pretty funny. Yeah, that was like some Sully level wife phone calls. <laughs> <laughs> Just Tell checking the kids in. I'm okay. <laughs> yeah, not much of a wife guy. No, no, but you know, he seems more connected with the mother of the missing girl, Marianne. Yeah, because the- that's like the one thing that's on both of their minds all the time. Seemingly is this case has just overwhelmed his life to the point where now he thinks about this girl as much as her mom probably mm-hmm. did. So that's the one person he can relate to on a human level now. And this is something I kind of found interesting about the movie. A lot of movies like this, the kind of thing to do would probably cage gets really into this type of pornography, this kind of rough pornography. And he really does keep a distance from it the whole time. And it's kind of always, you know, he's a chaotic neutral. He could watch it. He could soak it in, but he is not enjoy the movie does not imply that he enjoys any of this at yeah, all. Yeah, no, for sure. It's a it's kind of prudish in that way, but I think that's also what kind of it's kind of I think a uniqueness to it too. Yeah, I liked that though. There there's the scene when he's in New York and he's basically just living with Joaquin Phoenix's mm-hmm. character and there's a scene of him up late at night just like with a stack of VHSs of BDSM films and he's just like chain smoking and drinking beers at 3 a.m. <laughs> watching these films. And like honestly, yeah, like I I'd, I'd take that job. <laughs> <laughs> well, you did say snuff uh, films were cool in a previous episode. <laughs> yeah, and so it's just fu- following up on that. And it's kind of funny. One of the 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 Tony Soprano character or the yeah. James Gandolfini James character, Gandolfini. Yeah. as I say, is you know named Eddie. And I you know watching <laughs> watching the movie, I kind of I kind of gave a little chuckle to myself when I remembered that fact. I was very pleased to see that James Gandolfini's character was named Eddie, no matter how much terrible <laughs> shit he does, because James Gandolfini's a goat, yeah. and uh, also Nicolas Cage looks at the camera and says Eddie, and it's like, all right, I'll take, I'll take it. <laughs> that's that's way better than paying for cameo. You know exactly, I mean? yeah, paying thirty dollars to Rose McGowan on cameo, no thanks. <laughs> so he meets James Gandolfini's character because Joaquin Phoenix finally introduces him to Dino Velvet, who he describes as the Jim Jarmusch of S&M. Because <laughs> he's so weird and twisted. That's the reasoning. Yeah, and he... Well, because he's an artist. Oh, yeah, that too. That too. Yeah. So, <laughs> uh, he realizes that James Gandolfini's character, uh, Eddie Poole, has like a connection to him through this like sleazebag network, and he like wiretaps uh, Gandolfini's phone, so he hears like a conversation where he's like, oh, you know, you need to fly out to... New- New York, blah, blah, blah. He goes to New York to find him with Joaquin. And this is where it gets really sleazy. You know, Mm -hmm. when they get to the New York underground porno scene, it's like 
it's the real shit. I don't know. I love that shit. I think Schumacher yeah. puts so much into the milieu here. Like the set mm-hmm. design is so dense and yeah. like all of the costumes, like the gimp costumes and shit <laughs> are so sick. I don't know. Schumacher clearly has an affinity for this stuff and not like in a bad way. Like, no, yeah. Yeah. I'm saying that in a very, like he gets what he's filming. Uh huh. No, but yeah, I think like, especially with even some of the, the sets that are designed to just sort of be like pretty much empty, like the warehouses yeah. and things, oh, they yeah. still have that right look of like so much graffiti that there's like no even sense of like the base coat underneath it. Yeah. Like it's just like it captures sleazy so perfectly. Mm-hmm. No. Yeah. It's texturally rich and like, especially in like most of this movie is set in like bars porn stores you know abandoned warehouses it really all places we're frequenting (laughs) and have great familiarity with. (laughs) look i said the thing about the snuff films i'm not saying i'm into the scene all right (laughs) (laughs) so it then becomes a bit of like a very clear cat and mouse like chase for the last kind of hour of the film it's Mm -hmm. like an hour in that he realizes what he has to do and with about 50 minutes left he tells joaquin to go home and then uh, Joaquin ends up dead because Cage tries to do a little uh, undercover, you know, get a personalized film by this guy, Dino Velvet, so he can catch the guy who he identified through his hand tattoo in the snuff film. Mm-hmm. And, you know, Dino sniffs it out mm-hmm. and it's a confrontation right away. Some people get shot. Yeah. It's fucked up. One detail I liked about the fake porn set that, you know, Nick Cage gets lured into. So good. It's so good. I mean, there's a lot I like, I guess. But one detail I loved is that Dino Velvet, who's, you know, played by Peter Stomare or whatever. I have to give him a shout out because he's good in a lot of stuff. Oh, yeah. Um, but I love that he's just uh, has a crossbow and he's playing crossbow practice at the target. Just a great random detail. Yeah. The crossbow stuff is really good. And of course, it comes around to be meaningful. He uses it, it you know. Chekhov's crossbow if you introduce a crossbow in the first third of a scene it will be fired at someone in the last third of the scene and so uh yeah Dino dies and so does Joaquin Phoenix's character and uh who else dies in that there's all there's Um, the altercation lawyer oh yeah so then there's the twist that the lawyer for the old lady who hired him uh, who hired Nicolas Cage was in on it the whole time mm-hmm. and he's been playing them and Nick Cage uses some like you know information about how much they were getting paid and like pieces it together mm-hmm. to kind of distract them and have them fight against each other for a little bit mm-hmm. it's a nice little clever uh, action movie screenwriting device mm-hmm. not really that clever but uh, <laughs> it, it was nice yeah. Uh, and yeah it's like good action you know it's like a pretty competent chase scene yeah uh and then the violence gets like really hardcore though when it is just like the gandolfini versus nick cage showdown oh my god yeah. it gets really good yeah mm-hmm. uh they go to like the scene of the crime nick cage makes him take him to the place where they committed uh those acts you know and he fucking calls the mom on the phone while he's torturing gandolfini yeah, for permission yeah and it's fucked up. Yeah. Yeah. So he takes both of them out. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> he takes out him and the machine, the gimp and the mask. Yeah. Is like, that's the final showdown. Yeah. And but, the gimp's revealed to just be, you know, just a regular, just schlubby looking dude. You know, who are the people behind this? Who are the people in the underworld? They're just regular guys like you and me. Yeah. But the big relevant point really is that when he's getting to the bottom of all of this and he's so absorbed in this case, Nicolas Cage finds out that 
you know, the lawyer's in on it and he's asking him, why did this guy do all this? Why yeah. is this billionaire getting these personalized uh, snuff films? Why is he commissioning filmmakers to kill people for him? And it's simply because he can. Mm-hmm. And this is what we see with, you know, fucking Epstein. <laughs> like, <laughs> yeah, these billionaires doing all this insane, fucked up cult shit just because they can. Mm-hmm. Uh, and we will never know the glories of that unless <laughs> you donate to our Patreon. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, yeah, um, there's three different people, the lawyer, Eddie, and Machine, where Nicolas Cage asks the grand question that's you know underlying all of this. Do you jack off to this shit? <laughs> what the fuck? Did you watch it with him? What? The snuff film, did you watch it with him? This is not helping your friend. Now get the film and let's go. Did you get him off, huh, Mr. Christian? Watching them cut her up like that? Did he jerk off to it? You sit there, hold his cock, give him the hand job while, while Marianne Matthews was dying? What the hell are you trying to do? I'm trying to understand! I never saw nobody get done before. Why? Why? Did it get hard to come? Why? No. I mean, the only... I think the only person who was actually getting off to it was the machine. Yeah. He was just like this. Yeah, he was like, I'm, I'm not from a broken home. You know, I lived up well. This is just what I like. Yeah, and that was actually kind of a like a kink positive yeah. uh, thing, which is weird because it's like he's the villain at the end. Like, yeah, I don't know. It's kind of messy, but in a way that's necessary for like a studio film to yeah. be released about all this weird BDSM shit. Yeah, true. And the, another messy scene that I wanted to bring up that's kind of messing up the chronology, but the scene where we first come to L.A., where you hear like this kind of music that you'd hear in like black hawk down oh yeah yeah. Yeah. so weird so weird and we get we get a look of them driving around la where we see all the porn star porn porn stores yeah all in hollywood all in hollywood porn stores prostitutes both male and female Mm -hmm. and i think strip clubs but yeah it's just a strange sequence that's kind of has a mixed tone to it like it's kind of kind of almost trying to make it seem like a scary place but you know just the depiction of this stuff alone is you know there was one thing for me getting back to um, just sort of all of it unraveling then with the lawyer that I felt was like, I mean, I get why the central focus for Nick Cage's character was the machine because he was the one who um, actually like physically killed the girl. But I think it was weird because it like, I feel like displaced like what you would think like the pecking order would be for like the mm-hmm. villain then. At yeah. The end. Cause I feel like the larger threat is like sort of how, the wealthy are able to get like get away with it. But I mean, I get why it centralizes in because the machine is the one who like actually did it. And that is like the murder is most central to cage as opposed to like uncovering a, a secret elite pedophile ring. Yeah. Yeah. And you know who funded this movie? The wealthy just throwing that out there. That is true. The wealthy did fund this movie. (laughs) Oh, also the uh, guy who the, the machine looks like Stav. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. Uh, fans of another podcast will get that one. So yeah, it's a great movie. Real, it's it's like it has so many like little dumb things that hold it back yeah. from being great, but it has that like great movie energy for about an hour. Yeah, you know, it takes a little bit to get going, but it's like occasionally beautiful, mm-hmm. occasionally like completely suspenseful. Mm-hmm. Uh, the acting is just across the board fantastic, yeah. over the top, but like in the best way possible. Mm-hmm. Gandolfini, Cage, and Phoenix. Come on. Yeah. That's a great leading trio. And then Catherine Keener. Come yeah. on. 
She's and, lovely. And <laughs> yeah, she's great. And uh, you know, Stormare, mm. just wanted to throw his name in the ring. Oh she's yeah, he's great. Yeah, he was great. on like a like a wave there in the nineties. Yeah. Uh, I mean he's he was in uh like two cones, right? He's in Fargo and yeah. uh, Big Lebowski. I think so, yeah. I love the part in this where he shows Nicolas Cage the picture of Catherine Keener and like their kid. Yeah. And then he just eats it. Like he just, <laughs> 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 he just puts the photo in his fucking mouth and like a minute late and he's like chewing on it. And then like a minute later, it cuts to him spitting it out. Mm-hmm. So in the film's time, unless maybe we're getting subjective with Nick Cage's perception of it, but like. It seemed it's implied that for a full at least forty seconds he's just like chewing on this photograph. <laughs> he's an artist, it. man. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah. I mean, that was I, I, part of the more grating like moments in the script was like when he's like dying and he's talking about wanting like a cinematic death, <laughs> yeah, or yeah. like wanting it to be like something bigger than just like getting shot. Yeah. yeah, I don't know. I kind of liked that, though. It's silly, but I like it. I don't know. Yeah, it's kind of like, you know, an homage to all those porn directors who wanted to, you know, actually become directors. But I get I get your disdain for it, too. I'm I'm kind of playing the middle here. Yeah, <laughs> it's like uh, seven for perverts. And uh, for that alone, I will give it three and a half bullets. Yeah, same. Same as Eddie. Um, I'm going to settle it like three bullets. Are we going to do this like every week now? Rate it out of bullets? I'm down. Honestly, yeah. Might as well just throw our like what we get. You can fucking see it on Letterboxd. But yeah. hey, it'll throw a little more structure into the show. Sure. Yeah. Not everyone who listens has Letterboxd. But I'd say 95% of the people. Yeah. If you're listening to this and you're not on Letterboxd. Oh, sweetie. <laughs> <laughs> so that wraps up this week's episode. As always. You can reach out to us on email at extendedclippodcast at gmail.com. And it looks like we got our very first email this week. Hell yeah. Yeah. I'm excited. As we've (laughs) noted, we love email. (laughs) Rip open that mailbag. I have like six different emails. This one comes to us from Ryan Kelly email at gmail.com. If you want to message him. (laughs) Yeah. If if you also want to email him. Yeah. Feel Sent free. on Monday, <laughs> August 9th at 2.34 p.m. three days ago to me. I just want to say what's up, Ryan. All right. That's cool. Yeah, all right. I mean, we would, you know, maybe send in a question next time, but... <laughs> All right. Well, <laughs> you can also reach out to us on Twitter at Extended Clip 69. I am on Twitter at iPod underscore video. Bitch, I'm at Bitch Face Palace. I'm at Tallboy Thin Legs. And we're all on Letterboxd too. And we will see you next week. Thank you very much. Hell yeah.